I want to say, just as we open up, a huge thank you to the worship team, to all of our volunteers. There's a lot of things that our church is, and one of those things that we are not is we are not consumers by any means. I mean, we consume the word of God, but we have so many people who faithfully serve. We had people here last night setting up with prayer and pray, prep, which was a very sweet time. Uh, Julie and Scott worked overtime the last couple of weeks getting everything in here, but everyone serves. So many kids workers, so many kids volunteers, and I'm just incredibly grateful that you use your spiritual gifts to uplift the body of Christ. Take your Bibles with me today and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, we're in chapter 3 today, and we're in a series called Beloved Identity. I love the fact that as we've been going through this book in Ephesians, God doesn't just start out by telling us what to do. He doesn't just tell the Ephesian church, do this. Before he gets to the do this, God actually tells us, first of all, who we are in Jesus Christ. And he tells us who you are individually as a child of God. You were once far off, and you've now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a new life. You have a new mission. You have a new purpose. You are made new. And that is an amazing, amazing truth that we've been seeing now for five weeks. And here's where we're going with this today. Today, in Ephesians 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. We're going to understand that your identity, understanding your identity, is a prerequisite for facing adversity in life. We're all going to be hit with adversity, every single one of us. We're probably, some of us are getting hit with adversity right now. And this is what we need. Our identity in the beloved is what we have to hold on to. I haven't spent much time on this over the last couple weeks, but Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, is in prison. He is in prison as we speak. He's facing adversity. He's got a lot going on. And his prayer here, he's about ready to go into a prayer. If you look at verse 13, we'll get there in a second. He is clearly telling the Ephesians that, look, I don't want you to worry, for me, worry about me. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. Don't cry. I'm good. And he says this because even though he's facing opposition, he knows God has a plan through it all. He knows that his God is bigger. And it's great that we can see our identity is greater than our circumstances because his identity shaped how he was handling those problems. Any of you feel like you're not in a good place today? Some of you may feel this way, facing opposition. I mean, I know, I know some of us are. We, we all are to a certain extent. There's a lot of opposition that can hurt us. There's a lot of opposition that can plague the church. And when you boil it down, I think there's two things really that really come at us. And I'd like to call them um, two brutal bullying brothers. I'm making up a tongue twister so you can like catch me here on this, all right? Two brutal bullying brothers that actually trip up and plague the church at times. One of them is busyness, and the other one is boredom. Busyness and boredom, all right? Let's talk about this for a quick second. How many of you are busy? Like almost all of us, right? Life can be so, so incredibly busy. 
I mean, we have to fold the laundry that's piling up on the couch. Uh, you know, we have to feed the, the kids uh, pet fish that hasn't been fed in three days. Um, your car has to get transmission fluid changed, but you don't really want to change that and spend that $250 because you've just spent all your budget this week on fast food because you were too tired to cook. And now you still have that lingering in the back of your mind that I need to change that, and that's even making you more tired. It just goes on and on and on. We all need a nap, but we can't find a place to, or time to take the nap. So for many Christians, we're not just trying to serve Christ. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to keep our head above water. We have that working against us. Life is so busy. And then the other piece of this, at the same time sometimes, which is shocking, but it's actually true, we can also be bored of our Christian life. That sounds horrible to say, but that is the reality for a lot of people. A lot of people have lost their passion. They've lost their first love for Jesus. And it's almost a nuisance to get up and to schedule going to church and to put, make Jesus Christ a priority in your life. J.D. Greer wrote a book called Gaining by Losing, and he summed this up really well, this whole idea of just, I am bored. I am bored. Most people in church are just bored. They are afflicted with a nagging sense that they ought to be doing something, that there's something, some meaningful mission that they're supposed to be a part of, but they can't quite get their mind around what that is. So they sit in church, they try to pay attention, they give their tithes, they behave as best they can, and they wonder if when they get to heaven, if they're going to be rebuked for failing to do whatever it was that God wanted them to do. A lot of Christians just miss the big picture, and we're just mindlessly in this rut. And we're just like going with the flow, and we don't think about our identity in Christ and who he says we are and what he has for us. As sad as that gets, practically speaking, that is where many Christians are. Many people are in that place. Well, a remedy for facing boredom and the antidote for busyness is in this text. It's in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, where Paul is saying, don't cry, I'm good. I have a lot of opposition, but I'm actually just fine. And the same reasons that Paul is fine are the same reasons that you, Doxa Church, can be fine in the face of busyness, in the face of opposition, in the face of boredom. You can get past all that for what we see here today. We're going to see that when you embrace the grace of God, that will move you to share the glory of God. So you ready to see this? Ready to go to the text? Who's ready to go? Say, let's go. Woo. All right, let's do it. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Let's stop right here, because Paul's talking about a mystery. And when you hear mystery, I know some of you just automatically think, Nancy Drew, or Hardy Boys. Maybe we got some Angela Lansbury fans in here. I don't know. But mystery, we think of something as a mystery as this is something that I don't understand. I can't comprehend it. I have no answer. It's just a really, really hard thing to figure out. But the truth is, in the Bible, in the New Testament, 
the word mystery isn't the same as we think of the word mystery or the same way we use the word mystery now. In the Bible, the word mystery means something different. So look at verse 5. Paul's going to tell us what this mystery is, what a mystery in the New Testament would be. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So catch this. The difference between a mystery now, as far as, you know, watching a good mystery show or whatever, and a mystery that Paul's talking about in the New Testament is, this is a mystery that was hidden for ages, and now it's revealed. It's not just something that's impossible to understand and tricky to figure out. No, it's just something that was hidden. Just something that no one knew was coming. It was a secret, and nobody saw this coming. So what is it that was so hidden that nobody realized it would happen, but it did? Verse 6, this mystery is that the, prophet, is, this mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the first point today is perceive God's grand mystery. This is what we have to do, our first step in facing the opposition and letting that roll off our shoulders and trusting God and saying, hey, don't cry. I'm good. I can handle this. This is the first thing. You have to get it. You know a mystery. And you are part of a mystery. And you can share in this mystery now. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. This isn't like the church now becomes Israel. This isn't, uh, don't confuse this. This is two distinct people, the Jews and the Gentiles, have now become one. And that was shocking. I mean, there would be gasps. People would be dropping microphones. Like, this is like, what? The Jews and the Gentiles are coming together as one now? That was not seen. Nobody saw that coming. This is the good news of salvation that's now available to everyone. And in the Bible, we talked about this last week. You're either a Jew, or if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And the Jews were the ones who had the promises. The Jews were the ones who were near to God. They, they had this, and now the mystery is it's available to every single last nation, tribe, and tongue. We're all going to come to know Christ through faith in him, through faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know we probably, a lot of us in here, like mysteries. I mean, I am a sucker for a good Agatha Christie uh, murder mystery play. And uh, there's, I think there's something like hardwired in the human DNA to like take joy into finding something out at the very end. I mean, if you give me a story that's mysterious, I don't know what's happening, and they'll reveal it at the end, I'm in. Like, I just love those kind of, I love those kind of shows, love those kind of movies. But bigger than what, the, bigger than like any mystery that we have here on earth, any mystery that you watch on TV, on a movie, this is a mystery that affects every single person in the world. And here's the truth. I know this is true for you probably because it's true for me. Like, I don't get just stoked and blown away and shocked when I hear that the Jews and the Gentiles are now both partakers of the promises. That doesn't shock me. For 2,000 years, the Gentiles have known the gospel, and we've been a part of the church. So let's take this down to Greenville, Sparburg, 
2019. Why is this so shocking? Why? What does this really mean for us? How does this impact you and me? Because yes, of course, we're one in Christ. The gospel's for us. That's great. Please don't ever get bored of that. But what does it mean practically for you right now? Well, it means that we have to take an interest in other people that are different than us. It means that we need to dwell on this to perceive. Perceive really means that you, that you think about it, you meditate it, not only with your senses, but also with your mind. We really need to fully grasp what is going on. The gospel is for everyone, and that has to change some things about us. Replace racism with love. We talked about that last week. But that's, again, Paul's still talking about that. We should be praying that our church gets some cultural diversity. We should be taking an interest in people who don't think like us, who don't talk like us, and who just have a completely different pattern of life. We should invest in them. We should try to learn other cultures, to make an effort to learn from people who aren't exactly the way we are. We need to put ourselves in the uncomfortable positions to understand where other people are coming from so that we can have empathy for them. That's what we have to do as a church because different people are becoming one. And you may be thinking, well, David, seriously, really, that sounds a little extreme. I mean, can we really, are you, is it really asking us to do all of that? That's the application that I see from this. I see that if we as a church are supposed to be different people coming together to become one, that we have some work to do in that area. And this is a beautiful thing. It's almost like our culture around us, everywhere around us in the world, is divided into subsets of people. The church should be the one glaring thing that is not divided, that we are united. The parallel passage to Ephesians 3 is Colossians 3. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae the same time he wrote this church, this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he's talking about the same thing. If you want to just turn a couple books ahead to the book of Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3, I want to read this because Paul's talking about the same thing and he's adding a few more details. Let's start in Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were 
called into one body and be thankful. So good right there. Do you see it all? It's all packaged together in, in Colossians 3, 5 through 15. Love binds it all together. We're going to have to forgive each other. We're going to offend each other, but we're going to have to say, you know what? We're going to let love cover it. I'm flawed. You're flawed. I forgive. I'm going to show grace. We're going to move on. That's how different people can come together and live as one together, unified. Now, I love when Paul gives us this breakdown in Colossians 3 about the different people, Greeks and Jews. I mean, those are pretty different people, right? You know, that's, that's very different. different. Different clothing, different language, different culture, history. Everything's different about them. Uh, circumcised and uncircumcised. We joked about that last week. It's not really a joking matter uh, for them. Like, it was a big deal. Um, that's a big difference coming together. Barbarian and Scythian. I mean, a lot of us don't even know this. We hear barbarian. We kind of know what barbarians are, are, right? Like, anybody north of, like, the Roman governments or, like, the Greek city-states was considered a barbarian. It doesn't mean that they were, you know, lunatics or scientifically rudimentary. Like, it just means that these people weren't part of the known world with Rome and with the Greeks. So they called them the barbarians. And the barbarians are now into this. Jews, Greeks, barbarians, and then Scythians. Like, a lot of us don't know what that is. I had forgotten what that was until we had a couple weeks ago. Ben was doing some wife group leader training, and he talked about the Scythians, and it was so good. I even went, I researched it even a little bit more. The Scythians were like the barbarians of the barbarians, okay? The barbarians, they were the only ones who drank undiluted wine. Like, that was like, oh, those barbarians. Who are those people? The Scythians, not only did they drink just pure, undiluted wine. I mean, they mixed their wine with blood, okay? These people were nuts. Um, when you go into the study, I, I could really digress into this, but they came in from, like, Asia, and they moved into the regions of the Black Sea. They really, really loved um, body piercings, tattoos. They loved cannabis. As a matter of fact, they would, like, burn hemp seeds on, like, like really hot rocks in tents and make a big smoke bath and have... I mean, that's, this is the kind of people we're talking about. The Scythians, they're now one in Christ, okay? All these people with different backgrounds, different cultures, they meet Jesus, everything changes, and they're coming together. Slave and free, I mean, enough said. Do we have to even elaborate on that one? Slave and free? It doesn't get any more different than that. This is the grand mystery that anybody from any walk of life, can meet Jesus, can by faith bow the knee, repent of their sins, trust Jesus Christ, and they who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. But God, by his love, by his mercy, saves and forgives us. We have to get excited about the unsearchable riches of the gospel. That's why we're here today. That's why we're here. That's why we're lifting high the name of Jesus. The gospel changes everything. It changes you, and it changes the way you look at people. It changes you, and it changes the way you look at people. So Paul is too stoked about the mystery being revealed to be down about the adversity that he's facing. Do you see how his identity, his knowledge of the gospel, the fact that he is now a child of God, 
That has changed the way he looks at people, and it's even changing the way he looks at his opposition, the things that are going on in his life that are not fun. He is embracing the grace of God to the point that he has to share the glory of God. And this leads into our second point. Point number two, display God's manifold wisdom. Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven of Ephesians three. We can go back to Ephesians now. We'll stay here the rest of the time. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am, very, I, am, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So how should we embrace the grace of God to share the glory of God? What does verse 7 say? What does Paul do? He preaches the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. It's that simple. Now, you may think, well, that's pretty overwhelming. I can't do that. I have, I have my nine to five. I can't stand up in front of everybody with a microphone every Sunday morning and preach. That's, that's not my calling, David. I know. I get it. I get it. Look at verse 7, though, there. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the, the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now, the word minister right there in verse 7 that's not just a word that, that we normally think of as a pastor. That's not that word. It's, it's actually a different word. The word minister there literally means a servant or, get this, a table waiter. All right? So that's, that's you and me. We are waiters and waitresses of the gospel. We serve up the good news that God has delivered to us, and we bring it to people where they're at. Think about, think about what a, a waiter, a waitress does, right? What are their responsibilities? Well, they're supposed to make everything great, prepare you to receive the meal, right? I mean, they're supposed to be anticipating your needs. The difference between a good waiter and a bad waiter, I mean, bad waiter, you know what they're like. They just do the bare minimum. They're there when you like have to jingle the ice in your glass for more, more water. You have to feel bad about asking for bread. Like, that's, that's always a terrible feeling. Like, good waitresses are on that. They're like, ah, I can see this person's kind of getting close to being done with their bread. I'm going to ask them if they want more bread. I'm going to be right there with their water. In the same way, you are delivering the good news of the gospel to the people that you rub shoulders with. That's your calling as a minister of the gospel. We don't grumble and complain. Like, we anticipate needs. I, Julie and I love going to the Cheesecake Factory. And I think one of the reasons I was thinking about this, why we go to the Cheesecake Factory for every single one of our anniversaries, is because the first time we did this, on our first anniversary, we went to the Cheesecake Factory in Boulder, Colorado, and our waiter was just amazing. He knew the menu, like, by heart, OK? This guy described exactly what we, were, what we would want to eat, 
He figured that out. He got to know us a little bit. He gave us the perfect meal. He, he picked out the perfect cheesecake for us. Everything about that experience was just so elevated because this guy was just so great. He was such a likable guy. And, and we still go to the Cheesecake Factory because we had such a good experience like all those years ago. I mean, and the food's really good, and it's Julie's favorite place. But like that contributed. That helped. That helped. If you have a waiter or a waitress that's not friendly, that's grumbling, that's fighting with other waiter, like other people, like that's a really big turnoff. Like this happened to me as a kid. I, I don't even know where we were. I don't even know what state this was. I just remember as a young kid, we were at this restaurant called Friendlies. Has anyone ever heard of the restaurant Friendlies? Okay, more people than I thought, because I don't, I don't even know if they still exist. Maybe they do. Uh, but we were at Friendlies, and I remember as a little kid, these two waitresses were just going at it with their Friendlies uniforms on. <laughs> just like, how I mean, they were having a bad day <laughs> at work, and they were just shouting really loud. As a little kid, that really like, affected me and turned me off. I was like, Dad, what's wrong with those ladies? Like, they're not being friendly, son. <laughs> Okay, if you're a waiter and a waitress of the gospel, you can't be a grumbling, complaining Christian that's fighting with other Christians. We have one dish to serve up. It's the good news of salvation. And you know what? A good waiter, a good waitress, they don't like just sprinkle some Parmesan cheese on there to try to make it sound better and make it more palatable to someone else. You deliver the food hot and on time. That's all you have to do. You don't mess with the food. God's the chef. He's the one who made it happen. He's, he's the cook. We're the waiters and the waitresses. So let's be the right kind of waiters and waitresses as ministers of the gospel. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus Christ. That's what we can share with other people. Verse 9, take a look at that. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. This is the mystery that was hidden for ages. And God all along knew, even though no one else really knew, including the angels, as we're going to see. This is what he wanted to do with you and me. Verse 10 is where it gets crazy. Look at verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's talking about angels and demons. Okay, we got to back up here. Angels and demons are looking at this, the mystery of the church, and they're looking at it in awe. In Revelation, we see that the angels cry out, holy, 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 day and night to God. They're there with God. The, the angels we can see in, in the book of Job, they were there when God created the stars, when he spoke this world into existence. The angels in Matthew, Matthew 18 or Luke 15, they rejoice every time a sinner comes to repentance. The angels see a lot of things. They saw Moses and the children of Israel walk on dry land. They've, they've been there. They've seen it all. They are in awe of the mystery of the church. Different people, different walks of life. People who were far off coming to the cross, meeting Jesus Christ, and everything changing. That is the mystery of the church, and the angels are in awe of it. 
That's the heart of God, to make alienated, separated, hostile people into brothers and sisters. He makes us into brothers and sisters. That's who you are. In verse 11, this is God's plan all along. From the very beginning, this has been God's plan. That's the heart of God. This is incredible. If you are passionate about the glory of God, get this, you can't be casual about the church. There's no way on earth. If you really understand what the church is, you cannot be casual about it. You can't keep it at arm's length. You can't make it a convenient accessory to your life that fits in when you want to. It's too big of a deal to show up a couple times a month. It's, it is. It's too big of a deal. We have been called out by God. We have been gifted with spiritual gifts. We are called to love one another, to shine the light, and to be the hands and feet, the body of Christ, the living, breathing body of Christ in this earth. That's how we show Jesus Christ at, at work. We can't be horrible waiters and waitresses. We have a lot bigger responsibility than just serving up hot pancakes. We are representing the glory of God. So let's take that responsibility seriously. We have to embrace the grace of God, what he did in your life, so that we can share the glory of God. Self-centered church members are not getting it done. Lone Ranger, Han Solo, individualistic church members are not getting it done. Church members that are just so consumed with their problems and what's going on in this evil world, in this adverse world that has the curse of sin, and that's weighing you down, that's not going to get it done either. And we're going to talk more about how you can get past that, but it starts with this. It starts with embracing the grace of God. This is what God did for me. Paul's in jail right now. Things are really not going well for him. He says, don't cry, I'm good, because my identity in Christ is so much greater than my circumstances. Bring your culture, your background, bring your baggage, bring it all, come to Christ, lay it at the foot of the cross, and become one. Become one in unity with each other. Allow the gospel to change you and to unify you so that your conversations, your text messages, the things that you say around the water cooler, all those things point people to Jesus Christ. When people look at the church, they should be like, wow, what? What are all these different people from different walks of life who listen to different types of music? They're all worshiping Jesus. They, they gather in homes on, on a midweek weeknight, and they pack out. You know, the, the, the parking lot's overflowed. And, and our neighbors talk about this all the time to us. Like, I, I can't have a conversation with one of our neighbors without them saying, like, wow, you really have a lot of people coming to your house on Tuesday nights. What's going on over there? There's all these different people showing up at your house. I explain what it is. This is the church in action. God's eternal plan was accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the unsearchable riches that we can never, ever get bored of. Paul is a prisoner. He's staring adversity from the minute he wakes up to the minute his head hits the pillow or whatever he slept on. It was constantly facing him, but it didn't phase him. This leads us full circle to the last point. Point number three. Keep courage because God is good. Keep courage because God is good. Look at verse 13 again. 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. If any of you remember our opening sermon in this, in this Beloved Identity series five weeks ago, it was diagramming. I know if you have superhuman memory and you remember that sermon, diagramming your identity, we talked about how the Ephesians were so tight with Paul. They had tears when Paul left Ephesus. Paul and the Ephesians are lifelong friends. Doesn't, the distance doesn't matter. They love each other. And when the Ephesians saw Paul in jail for like going on five years now, it really hurt them. It really bothered them. They were really upset about that. But Paul says, look, take courage. Take heart. Don't worry about this. I'm good. You don't need to cry for me. You have a beloved identity. You are in Christ. This is your calling. This is your mission. This is your passion. For this reason, because God is displayed, he is displaying his glory through their faith. We can't be so busy that we aren't embracing the grace of God to the point that we can't even share the glory of God. We can never get that busy. If you're that busy, you've got to cut out something that's not as important as the glory of God. You've got to cut out something that's not as important as the church. Because you can't let those lesser things get in the way of the mission that he's given you. We talk a lot about, I mean, I, we read that like boredom piece by J.D. Greer. I hope our church understands what you're called to do. We spend a lot of time trying to teach that. Our mission is in our name. It's to glorify God. Our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's that simple. We should, not, we should not miss that, and we can't get bored with that. Okay? It's us loving other people, sharing the good news that Jesus died for them, that Jesus loves them, that Jesus changed my life. That's what we're called to do. You and I cannot get so discouraged with adversity that it keeps our heads down. And I know that's so much easier said than done. Because we face a lot of adversity. It's not even just the busyness. It's not even just the boredom. Sometimes it's the horrible things people say to us. The horrible things that people do to us. It's the workplace that's just a madhouse that's incompetent and needs to change completely. It's, it's a lot of things out there that can get us down and wear us down. How is Paul able to just look up and say, don't cry for me, I'm good? It's because Paul gets his mission. And he has made the mission of loving his neighbor, of being a minister of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, he's made that a really big deal in his life. He's put it at the proper place. And because he's put that at the proper place, these other things are rolling off of his shoulders. Because he knows they're temporary, he knows they won't last, and he knows they won't change his identity. There's some, I know, really, really hard things. That does not change. It can't change who you are in Christ. It can't change the fact that you're accepted in the beloved, that God loves you, and that God has a plan for you. It's the gospel. I don't have some elaborate mystery answer to give you. It's just simply the gospel. That's what you cling to. That's what you go back to. Don't lose heart 
you're here to accomplish something that's greater than yourself, to embrace the grace of God and to share the glory of God. And then there's this last thought-provoking comment he says there at the very end of verse 13. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Like, what? Well, how does this work, Paul? Like, what Paul is suffering, he's in jail, he's going through it. What he is suffering is the Ephesians' glory? You got to really think about this one, because this is not an easy one to understand. Granted, I spent some serious time thinking about this and reading a few, few other people about what they had to say about this. God's glory, we know what that is. God's glory, we talk about it a lot. It's everything that's true about God. His character, his attributes, his love, his justice, his mercy, you name it. His long-suffering, his patience. Every attribute of God is a part of his glory. Just like for you and I, like all of us, our full self is our glory. You see somebody in all their glory? It's like, it's the real them. That's all them. It's right there. So God's character, his attributes, and his glory, the fullness of who we are is our glory. And what Paul is saying is, look, I ministered to you. I sacrificed for you. I am actually now in jail and in prison because I preached the gospel in part so that you could hear it. That actually is a part, has a part, and it plays a part in your story. Think about what Jesus Christ did. He died on the cross for us. We don't glory in that, but because Jesus Christ did that, part of our glory, part of who we are, is a redeemed, chosen child of God. When your mom and your dad sacrifice for you and work for you, they don't want you to pity them. They love you. They do it because they love you. They sacrificed for you, and now that's part of who you are. So it's part of your glory. Part of your glory is no matter what your mom or dad did for you, they did something for you because you're here today. And that played a part in getting you to be who you are. What Paul did to the Ephesians.